Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Justin McConnell, a writer and director whose films include The Collapsed, Skull World, and Broken Mile. He's also a producer, editor, and cinematographer with dozens of genre credits, and his new film, Life Changer, an interesting, unsettling spin on the body-swapping thriller, opens in Toronto, Ottawa, and Calgary this Friday, December 28th, before it comes to VOD in North America on New Year's Day. Justin picked Christmas Evil, Lewis Jackson's 1980 horror movie about a disturbed toy factory worker who sets out to enforce the spirit of the holiday season with extreme prejudice. Well, that's how the distributor sold it, anyway. In practice, Jackson's film is worlds away from a slasher movie. It's an unpredictable, actively disquieting study of a damaged soul grounded in an emotionally complex performance by Brandon Maggart. Although, well, grounded might not be the right word. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. Christmas Evil is one of my favorite uh, Christmas horror films. Uh, largely because, uh, I mean, obviously I'm a fan of the Silent Night, Deadly Nights to an extent and, uh, Saint and Gremlins and, you know, all the classics, yeah. uh, Die Hard, even though it's not a Christmas horror is, you know, it, it's pretty bloody. Yeah. But, I, I watched it again a couple of weeks ago for, yeah. for Jeremy Lalonde's podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which I've also been on, uh, a the, while back. Yeah. Um, the, but the knee violence alone in Die Hard is, is actually like, there's a slow motion shot of just people's legs being shredded. It's, it's yeah. surprisingly yeah, violent. It's pretty violent. Uh, but Christmas Evil to me is a very strong psychological thriller where very much like Life Changer, um, the, the lead character, uh, the protagonist, while not the hero, uh, is trying to do things that to their own psyche they believe is right or they believe is, is um, you know, in a, some sort of a twisted sense of the world, uh, they believe they're putting good into the world even though they're causing a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And Christmas Evil has that same tone and that same, same theme as Life Changer does. So I thought they kind of complemented each other. Both also take place around Christmas. Christmas Evil is very overtly Christmas. The guy works in a toy factory. He's very disappointed with the output that he puts out every day. He's pissed off that his boss cuts corners and makes shitty toys for for profit uh, and sees him as like the antithesis of everything that Christmas stands for. Um, And the the idea that even from youth, uh, you you know, his his entire worldview is perverted by, I guess, perversion uh, (laughs) is the best way to put it. He uh, he did not take it well when his father uh, dressed up as Santa Claus and then uh, showed up as Santa and really made him believe. And then the, on the same night, he saw... Uh, I remember Fangoria was the first magazine I ever saw anything about Christmas Evelyn in the 90s. And there was a photo from that opening scene with uh, Santa Claus kind of like um, worshipping his mother's legs. Sure. Uh, and the caption was something like, yes, vagina, there is a Santa Claus, <laughs> which I, I, I was probably a Michael Gingold caption. It feels like something he wrote, but I'm not going to put that in that his is mouth. such a long way to go for that joke, but yeah. that is yeah. just amazing that someone saw that and thought of it. Yeah. It's, so, <laughs> I mean, for me, it's, it's the, it's the, the expertise the film has in its script mm. and the way that it basically just inverts all the, it, it it never directly parodies the christmas stuff it's just no. there right it's it's i saw mommy kissing santa claus mm-hmm. but if you actually did see that it would be traumatic a little traumatic yeah um, obviously he seems to be a somewhat twisted person even as a kid like there's probably something wrong there yeah uh and then he takes that way too far when he gets older when he makes himself a de facto santa claus for his neighborhood mm-hmm. to the point where he's spying on the children with binoculars from a building across the street which is 
both creepy and kind of endearing at the same time when because he's got two books that he keeps and they're yeah. if you read the infractions the specificity, the of, specificity yeah. of the infractions are like <laughs> kicked over a garbage can uh, like specific like little tiny things that are like kids being kids but that's a naughty thing for a kid to do so he writes it in a book he's got old I forget the name of the kid but the one child he's got this long long page uh, that's the one he he doesn't he, like he, he doesn't actively try and kill kids he, he's very yeah. Um, even when he kills adults, it's usually like he either gets cornered in that place where he's trying to get to. Um, I forget. I even forget who the character is. He's trying to get to up the steps in front of the church. But there's three people kind of making fun of him in the Christmas spirit, and he massacres like three people yeah. on the steps because uh, he's blocked by this crowd and he's just backed into a corner. And and, um, and most of the most of the people he actually kills in the movie are very much uh, people he believes are are against the Christmas spirit. Um, and even a naughty kid isn't really against the Christmas spirit, so we don't, I don't think he sees. He just wants to scare them into being good. Yeah, um, he's, he's he sees himself as a benevolent force, mm-hmm. uh, and he is so clearly not. No, and, and again, that's like the, the 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 simple the simple disconnection, which is really a yawning abyss mm-hmm. of being a moral arbiter and being <laughs> Santa. Because yeah. Santa, well, this came out too. I guess we need to to set yeah. up the context. Nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty, around around the same time as Silent mm-hmm. Night, Deadly Night, and of course, it's been it's a couple years before. I think maybe one year before. Is it really? Yeah, it's, oh, okay. it, it predated Silent Night, Deadly Night. Maybe they um, came out on video around the same VHS probably, the same time, uh, they were, they but were it definitely confused. came out theatrically before Silent Night, Deadly Night. Right. I, I think it was one year before. And the idea yeah. of this playing theatrically alone, just like you, just yeah, it's the description. I I admit. Uh, I, I have confused it as well as everybody else has probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, for the longest time, I hadn't, I didn't see it until I guess the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray came out a couple of years ago. Okay, that was pretty recently. Yeah, yes. twenty fourteen, as yeah. far as I can tell. And I probably saw it a year after that because I always thought it had simply been another label for Silent Night, Deadly Night. I never actually realized they were two separate movies. <laughs> and not only that, um, the title Christmas Evil, right, uh, Lewis title. Jackson, the director, he does not like that title at all. That was forced on him by the distributors. The actual title of the film is You Better Watch Out. Yeah, which is he doesn't much even, better a way better title. He doesn't see uh, Harry, the, the um, Brandon Maggart's character, as evil. So he's like, what's the evil in Christmas Evil? And he's like, well, it's obviously capitalism and commercialism. If you listen to the commentary he did with uh, John Waters on mm-hmm. that disc, actually on the Synapse disc from before that, because oh. Synapse put it out first, right. I think. Right, carry it over, the, the water's coming? I don't remember. I don't have yeah. the Vinegar Syndrome disc, so oh, okay. I've only got the Synapse DVD from years ago. Because I played it, I paid Lewis Jackson 200 bucks to play it theatrically in Toronto at the projection booth in like 2011 or 2012. Nice. Uh, and I'm sure the nine people who showed up <laughs> had a really good fucking time. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, it, it does yeah. occupy a really weird space, though. Mm-hmm. It's not a slasher film. It has brutal violence in it, but yeah. it's not a slasher film. It's like it's more like Taxi Driver than anything yeah, else. That's what definitely. I was thinking. It's uh, it's After Hours. It's a Dark Knight on the Town film, like Stuart Gordon's Ed, Stuart Gordon's Edmund, uh, sure, yeah. something like that, where. It's a character on a downward spiral, or Bone, uh, mm. the Larry Cohen film, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Not the husband's story in Bone, where he like goes out in the town and he's he's kind of nuts and he's just, just and it, he just gets further and further down this sort of rabbit hole of, but in this case, this character actually is psychotic to some degree. Like, yeah, um, I mean, he's killing yeah. people. He's, he's, he's killing he's, people. He's clearly disturbed. Mm. He's, um, he's he's, as you said, he's operating along. Uh, rationale that we don't f- we understand it yep. but we don't we can't necessarily agree with it or see where it's going but his his rules are very simple so in that way it, 
does kind of f- play like a slasher film. A little just, bit. You know, like you go in the woods, you have sex, you curse. Jason will kill you. Mm-hmm. This guy has a very similar moral code. I think it's more complicated, though, than something in Silent Night, Deadly Night, though, where yes, it's exactly. a similar approach of he's he's like the Avenger for Christmas, and but it, and he's also on a bit of an actual revenge bent against the, the convent or wherever he grew up. But that is very much like, uh, that's a true slasher movie. That's like teens or, you know, young people partying and, and just getting being in the dispatched, like, yeah. being dispatched. And you don't get that deep into, I, I even, Billy is his name? Billy? I forget the Ricky. name. Ricky. Isn't it Ricky? That's, it's Ricky. Yeah. Uh, you don't get that deep into Ricky's character. And this one, you've got long takes where Brandon Maggard, who's actually exceptional in the film. Yeah. He's really good. And I, I knew yeah. him primarily from... Uh, uh, Dressed to Kill? Brothers, weirdly enough, okay. a cable show that no one remembers. Uh, it was, I want to say, it might have been HBO, it might have been Showtime. It was a U.S. cable show that ran here on First Choice or Super Channel or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a half hour multi camera sitcom about three adult brothers, one of whom was just coming out. The youngest of, of the three has has come out as gay, and the other two brothers are handling it very. They think they're handling it very well, but they're really handling it very badly. And it was screamingly stereotypical, but also surprisingly well. It was Will and Grace before Will and Grace. And this was how long ago? Like the eighties? Mid eighties? Wow. I mean, it, I'm surprised that sitcom even existed. Yeah, like, it was one of the first. It was short lived. Yeah. I think three seasons. Uh, wow. It was one of the first shows to mention AIDS, huh. uh, and it did it in an absolutely terrible, just clumsy fashion. Now, in a very special episode kind of way, yeah, but at least we've never they were met trying, before. You know, like, it's, yeah. it's, so, so yeah. Maggart was the blue collar character. Mm. He was like the tough brother yeah. who was okay with calling people fruit, uh, and right, that right. was like it wasn't exactly comic relief. But I remember thinking, coming away from that show, that he was the most interesting actor in all of it because he showed you. The and it's concept. strange he hasn't done much else besides a bunch of TV appearances. Like, yeah, he was in Dressed to Kill. He had an okay sized role there. Yeah, yeah. Then he did Christmas Evil as a lead, and then after that, he just sort of like he's a he was a very reliable character actor who would show up from time to time. But yeah. Christmas Evil is also full of those actors. Mark Margolis Jeffrey pops DeMunn, up. Jeffrey Yeah. Jeffrey Demunn, uh, Raymond J. Barry. They, they all pop up in these tiny little roles, but I think that adds a lot of texture to the world. And you, yeah. you know, it, it feels believable, even though it's sort of heightened. But I think the heightened elements are all in uh, Harry's head. Yeah, anyway, it's so, definitely yeah. a subjective film mm. uh, in its in its depiction. And we see uh, when we, well, in the ending alone, yeah. but, <laughs> but it, except someone else sees it. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, but it is one of those films where watching it for the first time, what, 30 odd years later yeah. at least, I just kept thinking, oh, this like this is first of all it's not what I thought it was mm-hmm. at all, uh, and second it's really distinctive. Like it, mm-hmm. this is the only movie stylistically made, distinctive. Right? Uh, if you read um, Lewis's intro and the Synapse DVD and some of his commentary, I forget the name of the artist, but he had his production designer design the entire film based on a specific Christmas painter. Mm-hmm. Like so, the entire film had the look of this uh, magical kind of overcolored. Uh, very stylized Christmas approach where every frame has this sort of idea. And it's not Norman Rockwell, but it's that style yeah. of painting. He made a horror movie based on an art style like that, which is just blows my mind. Yeah, it's a it's, yeah. it's the kind of movie that makes you first of all it made me wonder why he didn't make anything else. Yeah, exactly. And also I think that how he ever made one. Yeah, because, exactly. You know, like it's a film that's unaware of the rules. Mm-hmm. And so creates its own. And having just done an episode uh, with uh, with Peter Kaplowski about "Don't Let the River Beast Get You," I'm, I'm in this zone of, yeah. of like outsider horror, and this is very much an early piece of outsider art. And, yeah. and I like how there are, it, it, at times it's very uh, high paced. When you know when he's being chased by the people with torches and things like that, but otherwise the camera will linger on him as he's looking in a locker mirror and trying to force the smile on his face and and get the that like because he. 
he's a very dour character and he's very depressive and uh, he's not a particularly happy person, but he's able to be jovial when he puts himself in the Santa persona. But they actually show him in one long take try and force that persona on himself. Mm -hmm. And there's other parts where he goes to the children's hospital. You know, again, he's trying to do good. He steals a ton of toys from the factory. He brings it to a children's hospital, has them donated. And as they go inside to get help to bring the toys out, he's outside trying to practice Merry Christmas until like louder and louder and louder and louder. It's it's like he has to, he, he believes he's the persona, but he has to force it out of him because he can't, he can't just turn it on. Um, the, the, I think my favorite scene in the movie is he glues the beard on himself for the first time and he's looking in the mirror it's another one of those long shots and he just starts tugging at the beard and, and it's such a I, I can tell why John Waters likes the film so much because right. he it, it's almost like I'm not saying channeling divine but channeling that kind of outsider actor that yeah it, well it's it's in conversation with all the camp stuff but it's not yeah. camp at all it's, no. it's the thing that it's the thing in your brain that you tug on when you watch a movie that doesn't answer its own questions mm-hmm. I think you know like he's obviously that the pulling on the beard is, is his own childhood connection. And and Maggard is such an interesting actor. It's all in his eyes. It's all mm-hmm. in his shoulders. You, you see this tension that he's fighting with. There's a part of the Christmas party where someone taps him on the shoulder, and he actually physically shivers for half a second. And you'll blink and you'll miss it, but he shivers, and then he, he, he calms himself down, and he has a conversation. Yeah. And the, but the conversation is fucking insane. Yeah. Because uh, he's talking about... Um, it's Throughout the movie, he's talking about he finally understands the music you're all playing, and he can now dance to it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that means that like he kind of gets the way of the world, at least the way his mind works, and he's, he's figured out how he's going to push his way through it, which he's already over the deep end at that point. Yeah, but, but, it, but he's proud of the fact that he thinks he knows how to be a person. Yeah. Like, that's his revelation, his breakthrough, mm-hmm. is that he's never felt normal, and now he kind of does, yep. even though, I mean, it's almost like the identity narrative of this thing is, is fascinating for Well, him. I think it takes an outsider to write something like that, and I think a lot of the darker places you mentioned me going in Life Changer was, was the same sort of idea, it was just me mining the weirder parts of myself to try and put that on screen in a psychotic way. I could see Lewis Jackson doing the same thing while writing Christmas Evil. Like, um, and part of the reason some people maybe don't continue to work or they don't continue to make things is they are so singular with that, with their vision that it scares me. Richard Stanley's another artist that's very similar where yeah. he's, uh, you know, having met the man and spent time with him, he's fascinating and he's, he's he could lecture you on, like the any historical topic you want to talk about, he's researched it, and he's a very very nice person. I think it just scares people because he's so. It, and I, I'm I'm guessing. I mean, I don't know Lewis. I've only talked to him briefly, but I'm guessing it, that kind of an artist, um, they they can have a, probably have a habit of scaring away money people who like things to be very cut and dry and very yeah. just like okay, tell me what it is, tell me how to sell it. And, uh, you know, how does it hit these quadrants and how does it hit this audience? I don't care about the art. I don't care. Or, you know, I, I do, but I don't. Um, that sort of thing could really scare people in both directions. Like, OK, yeah, well, I don't yeah. want to work for these people. And OK, well, I don't want to work with you because you're not going to play nice and be easy. Yeah, it's yeah. a weird place to be right now in terms of genre where everybody responds to a singular vision. Mm-hmm once it's finished and completed oh, yeah. right in front of them, right? Yeah. Like the, the struggle to get that vision onto the screen mm-hmm. is exhausting and arduous and, yeah, and, and disheartening and people get turned away and, and give up uh, Yeah, and, and there are lots of creators that have sort of fallen on the, on the sort of um, the business wanting them to just focus on making something that does business and them wanting to... I, I, I know plenty of friends with some of the best scripts I've ever read that... Um, and I'm not going to name anybody. Peter and I have mutual that they're they're incredible, incredible stories. And and you know we're trying to get you know Peter's trying to get this one made. 
And I hope it gets made because it, once it's done, people will call it brilliant and that, that people will fucking love it. And I, I'm sure I can swear. I don't yeah, want to swear. People will love it. It's but, a Christmas um, But I, I couldn't imagine sitting in a room and pitching this project to somebody and having them go, okay, I get that. You know, like it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's very much like you get it once you've read it and somebody's talked to you about it in de- detail. But, you know, you got 10 minutes with, uh, with an investor and you go, well, it's about blah, 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 blah. And they go what <laughs> yeah how yeah. do you like, how do you do this in the room anymore how do you figure out i mean uh, this is easy guy in a santa suit goes yeah that, you can that's... say it in a sentence what it is is radically different mm-hmm. but at least it's a pitch we sort of understand and, yeah, and exactly. i understand why the distributors sort of betrayed it that way with mm-hmm. the poster that they went with and with the title which is also why it's been unfairly not forgotten because it's been resurrected on a cult level because of the people who understand the film sign the synapses the vinegar syndromes they get outsider art and they're going to put all the effort they can in putting out a good release and the like-minded people will buy those releases it's pay a lot of money for them because yeah. they can't run a lot of units but it's amazing though yeah. that that has become a thing now that we're mm-hmm. at a place where in distribution where a viable market model is ah 5,000 Blu-rays I, I bought uh, Ice Cream Man for $45 the Caruso no Ice Cream Man the, the, Clint, the, Clint, uh, the Clint Howard film oh talking Ice Cream Cone Head man, yeah, yeah, with yeah. yeah. So I bought that. I spent forty five dollars on the Vinegar Syndrome Blu ray of that, uh, and I do not regret it. Yeah, I don't want to tell you how much I paid for the first Steelbook of Suspiria. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, I paid eighty bucks for that. Yeah. I actually bought five of them because I was going to re. <laughs> I thought it was going to go the way the Phantasm box sets went, and I could resell them for. A t- I ended up reselling them at the cost value, but right. I bought five of them thinking if I sit on this for six months, maybe speculation. I can. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, people fucking got pissed off at me at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, well, you're taking it away from other. No, they're still out there. You, there's a reason that they didn't go up in value. You yeah, could, they weren't that hard to find. Yeah. Uh, but I yes, think, I did spend $80 on that. I think I spent um, $85 importing the limited edition Combat Shock Blu-ray that was just yeah, released. Right. Like, um, part of that's just respect to Buddy because he's, uh, you know, I drank with him and he's a really nice guy. But part of it is I really like the film. But again, a very singular outsider art yeah. kind of film. And I still can't believe Troma got behind that one. I yeah. Mean, I was, I remember that back in the day when the VHS mm-hmm. tapes came out and it was like, we're doing this and it's not what you think it is. It's like, no, goddamn, you're right. I don't <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like, such a different, it's not a trauma film, but I, I, I have to appreciate another, when a company takes a risk on that. Yeah. Like, and another weird overheated Trauma did Christmas study. Evil as well. Yeah. That's how Christmas Evil was in the public consciousness. Yeah, right. That's Trauma's where the original, the, they still have the supplements from that. Yeah, they do. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, I don't, fully understand how those visions lined up but it like the, this weird I think it's film thing. fans it's fans of film who see something unique and go you know nobody else is going to give this a home so why not us hmm. uh, it's the same sort of thing I do acquisitions with IndyCan and we, we I've been actively trying to find retrospective titles that you know just don't have a. I, I've been trying to find Source Riverbend which is like Sam Furstenberg's film with Steve James from 1989 that okay. the, Canon Films did which I think in this political climate would have a great uh, new life um, you know uh, Pins another one that which needs a new release and there, there, yeah. there's there's these sort of films that are they're not lost to time The Borrower John McNaughton's film The Borrower which it, it, you know there's similarities between The Borrower and Life Changer but I've I've loved that film for quite a while and uh, it's it was it's a lost film it's it not- uh, Sorry, I, I mean I remember I, re- I think I reviewed it when the videotape. Came yeah, well, because Canon way. Films released it on video, but that was as Canon was dying. Right. And what so happened Warner was still own those. Well, Warner owns it now, so okay. Canon split up between Warner and MGM. Warner owns it. The problem is, is that Warner's got uh, an archive. Uh, I can't go into too much detail, but um, the Warner archive stays closed for the most part. And just recently, uh, Screen Factory was able to get a bunch a block of Warner titles. Yeah, yeah. Um, they weren't able to get that one yet. So I've been trying to find. I tried to find it at home at uh, home at Anchor Bay initially, and now I'm trying with Screen Factory. 
um, just because I think it's a film that the a new whole generation would probably enjoy, even yeah, though it's, it's it's so weird. The, but well, I just if nothing else, now the the, the practical effects alone. Oh yeah. Like it, connect to people for sure but it's it is such, a, it, it is, is a, such a weird it's film. a weird unique movie and especially as a follow-up to henry portrait of a serial killer it was like what but it deserves i think it deserves its place in the sun more so than it had uh yeah. and and i think that's all that happens is that somebody who is passionate about a film goes you know i've got i think that's the whole reason companies like severin exist right is is david gregory probably went look at all these films that nobody's seeing and let me scoop them up and we'll put them out and um, I think it's a testament to the idea that film means something, and uh, especially to people who are are you know cinephiles, um, they want to see the films they grew up loving and the, that they grew up uh, appreciating and finding connection to live on, and they may have to go into debt to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, the labor of love thing. Yeah. The aspect of it is. I, I, I used to say, I, I suppose I still say, every movie ever made is somebody's favorite movie. Now, mm-hmm. it may be the filmmaker in some cases, but the, the, the way that people bond to stuff, the way that people are willing to do whatever it takes to share a given film that they love with other people, I, I've always, I, I think that's the thing that pushes me into this more than anything else. Like, that's what the show is about. Mm-hmm. The idea that it's, meaning, it's meaningful because it means something to someone. Uh, and then that person gets to explain why yeah like, to understand to help other people to, to bring them to exactly and I thing. honestly think there's an audience for almost anything and I, whether that's a good or a bad thing <laughs> is, is up for interpretation but the reality of it is is that uh, I mean I'll just even get personal here for half a second Please. I mean you haven't liked a lot of the stuff I've done in the past that doesn't mean there isn't an audience for it oh, and sure, it's the same yeah, yeah. sort of idea um, with uh, with almost anything that gets made, you're going to find an acolyte, uh, an acolyte who actually really believes. Okay, no, 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 this hit me at the right time of life, and I know there's other people out there like it. Let's try and bring it exposure again. Um, there are films that get lost because they kind of just never found the, the, those people to support it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but um, I think that if anything that's made with a with enough passion and enough of a singular vision and enough kind of um, Something that doesn't feel like it was made by committee or cheap or like just like another thing to pump into the market as a product. Anything that has that sort of personal identity to it. Uh, you were talking to Peter about Don't Let the River Beast Take yeah, You. it's exactly the The following that movie has now. Yeah. Just from, um, you know, I'm going to go see tomorrow night. I'm going to go see uh, Deadly Games or 3615 Code Pair Noel. Dial oh, Code Santa, Santa Claus. Santa Claus. What, yeah. You know, it's got so many different titles. Um the fact that that's coming back now after like being lost for so long. Uh, have, have you seen it before? Yeah, I, I saw it at the first laser blast screen yeah. the first time. I and then, only caught up to it a couple of weeks ago. And, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. but the, the the fact that this movie might have been lost to time if there weren't passionate people like um, laser blast people were some of the first to sort of bring it back. But before that. Uh, um, it's the Alamo, right? They were... Yeah, the Alamo did. Uh, well, yeah, the um, AGFA. The they're bringing it back uh, through the prints right now. But mm-hmm. even way earlier than that, um, the guy who runs the Duke, Duke Mitchell Film Club and one of the lead programmers at Fantastic Fest. Um, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Oh no worries, I forget names all the time. <laughs> I, it's Dunbar's number. Uh, it's a statistical analysis that says you've only got room for 160 names or faces at any given time. And I believe it. In any case, I would probably go with half that myself. Yeah. In any case, uh, he played it at the Duke Mitchell Film Club uh, years before Laser Blast did. Um, But again, this is all sort of like in underground circles. It's slowly gained a cult following, and now you know it's getting a pretty good release, and it's it's the talk of the Christmas season. Yeah, uh, which is great. 
but it yeah. took you know that's a slow bullet <laughs> and it's and it's the it's the love of of the civilians right like mm-hmm. it's people who didn't make the film people who've discovered it and found it the same way christmas evil has been bubbling along yep. uh to suddenly become like i don't know that it's suddenly relevant again but it felt like a very modern i mean it's messy and it's cheap and it's it mm-hmm. cuts a lot of corners in 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 terms of present day aesthetics but there's something like seeing it the same year as first reformed is kind of weird there, yeah. there's, there's a continuity there's a commonality mm. in these in these movies about people struggling with clinical depression or or whatever psychosis yeah there is. and then trying to to make the world better in their own perspective yeah. or their own mind mindset um worldview whatever it happens to be it, it feels organic right mm-hmm. like it feels like it comes from the same basic place I, well it might come from the same idea of just being frustrated with with like if it, the stuff I've heard in his in Lewis's commentary and I've read in his liner notes and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing he very much seems like uh, it very much seems like Harry is like uh, a psychotic personification of his own view of Christmas or yeah. his own view of the, the commercialism of, of what was once a pure holiday and uh, and I can't I'm, I'm never mean to put words in somebody else's mouth this is all just you know, uh, an analysis of what I can extrapolate from that. Sure. But I will say that um, I, I appreciate that worldview. And I think in my own work, there's a definite sense of um, being tired by at how the world goes eventually, how the, the direction the world takes or how it leaves behind the, the values or the, the things you might have held dear in your past, sometimes for the better, maybe a lot of times for the better. But also sometimes, you know, just because uh, there is uh, time moves forward and something is improved or upgraded or, um, you know, a, a tradition or a holiday changes into something else. Um, you know, Christmas, which was always has been a commercial. I mean, obviously it was religious. For, it's still religious for a long time. But it, at a certain point, it became a very commercial holiday. Yeah. Um, well, very, certainly in Western culture. Yeah, in Western culture. Yeah, it's always represented that. Uh, it, uh, but there was still... It, it felt like there was this weird purity to it for a long time of just like, yeah, you give your kids some toys and um, you all know, get together as a family. And you, it, it, maybe it's a skewed perception of an ideal, idealized thing that was never really true. But at least... That's the way it was painted through maybe through the fifties through to the eighties or something, and then yeah. it turned into Saturday morning cartoon violence toy hour, and uh, and you just had to like go through the Sears catalog or go you know buy everything you could, and it was a it was an arms race to buy the best gift for your your kids to beat all the other parents out, and it sure. was just. I, I, but again, this is which is now the plot of a beloved Christmas classic, Jingle All the Way. Yeah, right? of course. Like which again has grown from. People kind of liked it when it came out. To, yeah, this movie's amazing. Yeah, but they're, again, they were raised on it. Yeah, exactly. I, I think what you're saying, like, it, it seems to move generationally. Mm-hmm. Right? The the idea that Christmas was advertising in the 80s, which has now been embraced by the kids of the night who grew up in the 90s yeah. and don't really remember what it was like then, it's now their warm blanket. Well, the Not twenty-year mine. cycle of nostalgia, right? Is, yeah. is that every the people in the '80s were nostalgic for the '60s, and the people in the 2000s to 2010s are nostalgic for the '80s and '90s? Yeah. And I have no idea if the people in the 2030s or 2040s are going to be nostalgic for the early 2000s, but I can't. <laughs> who knows? I just assume it'll be yeah. like a, a Morlock and Eloy situation where everything will be destroyed by that point. Yeah, maybe. Really matter. Will, uh, it, will it be nostalgic? For it it could be also that oversaturation sort of leads to an idea like. Uh, an idea that maybe um, claiming an era for your own, like the 2000s or 2010s, maybe there won't be that much um, attachment 
for somebody later down the line because there's just too much choice and it, it, the internet's yeah, blown it all out. I like, wonder what will emerge. Right? Yeah. Like, is, is Stranger Things going to be a nostalgic point? Twenty years no, down because the road? It's, it's already, already a nostalgic, nostalgic point. Like, it's like what you're, if you're nostalgic for Stranger Things in twenty years, then you know you never experienced the thing forty years ago. Right. So it's that's, it's like, that's what I mean. If yeah. everything now is built on the older stuff, what will the new old stuff be in twenty it's, years? I, I, I think we can't predict it. I think there are films and pieces of media that have grown in popularity over the years that you could have never predicted would be what they are now. Um, and I, I just look at John Carpenter's The Thing, which when it came out yep. was critically derided, yeah. spectacularly bombed, and uh, you know every review was awful, and disillusioned Carpenter to the point where he didn't want to do a lot of other studio stuff. He did, but he he was he got, he got very bitter about it all. Uh, and I love him as a director. I, I I you know he's one of my favorites. Uh, but that being said, like you look at it now, and it's the watershed moment for practical oh, yeah. effects. It's considered to be a horror classic. You know, there are a whole generation of people grew up watching it. Critics be damned. And uh, and yeah, I think you can't predict what the next thing is going to be in twenty years. Uh, all you can, and that's why as a creator, you can't. I don't think you can kowtow to a trend or follow something that you hope will live on. You just have to create what means something to you and eventually down the line, maybe it'll live on and it'll have some special place on someone's heart. I mean, if all I ever do down the line is some kid like me has a section of their other video shelf with my movies on it, I've done what I set out to do on this earth. It's weird that that's the goal, but no, no, that's... I, yeah. I totally get that. The yeah. idea of, of, of leaving a legacy on your own terms, mm-hmm. right? And um, something singular like Christmas Evil removed from the protests of Silent Night, Deadly Night and probably how much that would have buried its home video release. And just the idea that it was released almost like as as an also ran to Silent Night, Deadly Night, because that one got all the press and all the scorn and all the, you know, all the big marketing. And Christmas Evil kind of got was quietly kind of dropped for a little while. Um, The fact that now... You know, you can easily go on Shutter and watch it anywhere, pretty much in the world that Shutter is. Uh, there's a readily available Blu-ray and DVD, uh, and it is talked about now as in this cult Christmas classic. Yeah, uh, probably more and respected, probably more so than Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies, none of them is any good. No, not no, technically. Really. Uh, and I think out of the five, the only one I can rewatch and get enjoyment out of, as as like, okay, I'll watch this again next Christmas, is Part Five. The Brian Usna one. Oh, the initiation is that? It? No, no, the toy maker. The, toy the one maker. with the crazy Mickey Rooney role. Mickey Rooney's actually a robot. He made a Pinocchio-like plastic son, uh, and the to- oh. it's got all the weird screaming mad George effects and the, right. the killer toys. And but wasn't the Us- didn't Usna, Usna also did four do? as well? Right, he did four, but Four's four the is the bugs tougher. And the, yeah, um, it's 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 and it's not much of a Christmas movie. No, it is like, a weird ass movie. Yeah, it's weird. I I I really appreciate. Using a again for that singular vision because right. that's he, the one he, where Clint Howard is Ricky. Clint Howard is Ricky. Okay, yeah, it, or or he's like a he's like I don't know if he's Ricky in it. Is he Ricky or is he just like a a, Ricky a servant to a, the cult to the witches to the cult? Like I thought both, but I could be wrong. It's been yeah. at least twenty years since I. Saw yeah, it. I just watched it last year, um, okay. <laughs> but I don't really remember. Uh, but Toymaker still sticks with me, uh, just because it, it's one of those things. The vi- the VHS art was really it, like well, I got to see that movie. Yeah. And then um, I watched it, and I think out of all five of them, obviously part two's got Garbage Day and all that, that you know, that, the, right, the Garbage right. Day scene everyone loves. Um, uh, it's a great ten seconds. And uh, <laughs> and the first one is, is, out of all of them, probably the best made, but um, yeah. it, it, it's not like it's the best slasher film out there. No, it's, yeah. and it's, I, I hate saying it, that a horror movie can be too sadistic, but I think that the Silent Nights, the first two really are just sort of, 
Well, they're they're murder for murder's sake in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah, they're not. They don't have the grace of of a Halloween. I mean, nothing has no. the grace of a Halloween. But the but even the sort of weird, no bullshit authenticity of of the Friday the Thirteenth movies yeah. isn't there. It's just it feels like exploitation of exploitation. Yeah, I could see that. It fe- it definitely feels like somebody picking a holiday by throwing a dart and then going, okay, well, we'll put them in a Santa suit. Yeah, this will get people talking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is why out of all five of those, part five is the only one that feels like a Christmas movie. To, like, it feels like something I want to revisit just because it's so bonkers out there. Yeah. Um, but, but, but Christmas, Christmas Evil, Evil has is, a reason for everything. Yes. It is rooted in the season. It's yeah. about disillusionment with the holiday. Like mm-hmm. it, it, bu- it, it builds its own cultural moment, if that makes any sense. I think so. And and it, it very much stands alone. I actually watched a YouTube video last week from a creator I respect who just watched the first five Silent Night, Deadly Night themes for, or films for the first time and then okay. talked about how there was Christmas Evil that came out the year before, but it's kind of the same film. It's not as good. And I went, so I don't know if I can respect that vision, dismissing it in one sentence like that when there is so much more going on below the hood of this film. Do you think he'd seen it or just looked at the poster? I feel like he just looked at the poster or that, something. I mean, like, that's such a dismissive... Uh, uh, there are people that I, I would have figured have seen it by now who I are like, I, I tell you should probably give this a watch if you haven't seen it because I keep trying to convince people and it's just so hard to yeah because well, it's like I, yeah. you know like I, my experience of it was I thought I had seen it because yeah. I thought it was just a well, one you could dismiss easily like don't yeah. open till Christmas the one with the kill, slaughtering of the Santas right, and, right. Um, yeah I could see absolutely yeah, it, it did get lumped in with all that stuff but it is it stands on its own its own entirely and oh, it's yeah. it's largely because of Brandon Maggart. And uh, and just the weird worldview the film has, and it's very much um, it's a singular singular protagonist driven film. There aren't really any scenes outside of a couple of scenes with the cops investigating afterwards mm. that are outside of the perspective. Well, it does give of you Harry. That, that lineup, which is so great, yeah. the lineup of Santa's yeah, were all exactly. taking the job way too seriously. Yeah. Like I have toys to make, I got to get back to the workshop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. that's a moment where the whole world seems as crazy as the as yeah. the lead character, and it's just it's well, wonderful. Even the way the cops are talking to each other, they're just like making jokes about about the Christmas season or in and around the, the murder investigations. Yeah. Like, um, I really like there are there only not there aren't that many kills in the movie. There's no, there's really. the small massacre at the steps of the church, right. and there's, there's the where he, murder, yeah where he murders really... his boss or the the toy company owner in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. But one thing really I weird and intimate and unpleasant. It's it's incredibly unpleasant. Um, it's it's a lot like a scene we've got in an upcoming film called Mark of Cain uh, that's from a book that was written in 1990. But the point is is that the the idea that he walks into this bedroom, the wife's still asleep. The way it's edited, where he's trying to smother him with the bag of toys, but he's looking over at the wife and making sure she's not asleep. And there's there's this, it, it's it's so cleverly edited because you actually you're in uh, Harry's mind in that moment, and he he's looking around the room for another weapon he could potentially use if he wakes up, if if she wakes up, yeah. like he, it, you. No, you're worried. Every for him. cut, it's, it's really strangely yeah. sympathetic. Yeah, every cut, it it, it informs the what. It's not just. Okay, he walks into the stabs and it's over. It's 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 played out more like um, when a character in a noir film has to dispose of a body and someone knocks on the door and like it's that kind oh, yeah, of it's a, more problems to solve over and yeah, over again. Exactly, and then the wife wakes up and as the throat is being slashed and she can't scream at all. She's just trying to get the scream out. And he walks out. He sees the kids. He smiles at them. She, they smile back. He's Santa Claus, and then the scream comes. That whole sequence. It's just so well executed. Yeah. Yeah, and jarring because mm-hmm. up until that point, we haven't, I mean, we've seen him be violent, but we haven't seen him be. Like premeditated. Yeah, and conflicted yeah. about it. Too. Yeah, exactly. Sort of caught in the middle of what to do and how to do it mm-hmm. and realizing that he's not good at it is actually 
another way of keeping us on his side, even yeah. as he's doing all this. Well, you could see it in his face, too, that uh, there's regret there. Yeah. Like, he doesn't... He is not a cut-and-dried, crazy person. I mean, he is. He's lost... And I'm not going to get into clinical terms. No, but for but the purposes of the film. Yeah, right. for the purposes of the film, he's insane. But he... There's a war going on, and you can see it in his eyes and in his facial expressions, and just the the performance leads to this idea that uh, he thought what he was doing was right, and then afterwards he's like, oh, shit, maybe not. And It's that weird thing that you recognize in uh, outsized fantasy mm-hmm. film where we have to still kind of be people yep. in the middle of this bizarre insane thing there's like there is no explaining the ending no it, it, I, I i rationalize that as um it, it's a death dream for him but, but someone else does it. see or it looks like they see yeah but and they're reacting with wonder but are they just reacting to the car going into the into the river yeah like i don't i i, I it's it's nicely uh left up for interpretation yeah. and i'm entirely on board with that I don't think it says he's actually Santa Claus, as I've heard other people say. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Which is an interesting idea, but it, and and this I guess the origin story, yeah, the origin or the idea that somehow through his his pure Christmas spirit, he's become Santa or something like that. Right. I do think it's a death dream, but I I can't honestly say that that's absolutely what it is. Yeah, uh, I don't even know if Lewis Jackson would know what it is if you truly asked him. Like, would he know what the ending means or? I don't know. I would hope he wants it to be yeah. a true victory. I, yeah. I, it feels like... the And it feels like the movie gets you there. It feels like the movie mm-hmm. makes it possible for it to be happening either way. For it to be real or fantastic. Yeah. Or a fantasy. Just because at that point, it has done so many things that movies aren't supposed to do. And it has <laughs> taken so many different approaches to mm-hmm. things that it's like literally anything could happen and and well I, the tensest scene in the movie is the uh the party after he kills the people at the foot of the steps the massacre he's looking in on a christmas party where there's kids sleeping on the one side and the parents are all dancing and he's sort of swaying along to the christmas music and then drunken mark margolis and his friend are outside he's like we caught you you're coming inside and they force him to be santa and for, yeah. for the whole party and for the kids he's just killed three people and the tension there is like, especially when he makes the speech, when he's like, if you're good boys and girls, you know, I'll bring you lovely presents every year. But if you're bad, I'll bring you something horrible. And there's this silence. Yeah. And then he just laughs as loud as possible. And everyone sort of like loosens up a little bit. But no matter what, the parents are still giving this look. It's it's like I, I, could, I, I imagine directing that scene like as singular the vision of the film is you. It doesn't feel random to me. At all. It feels very intentional. Like, he told the parents, okay, this is the look you need to have. He knew exactly... Maybe he, maybe he was a school of, or from the school of De Palma. Maybe he, he... I don't know his background as a film lover. Yeah. But, I almost wonder if he told them anything at all. And just yeah, let it happen. And, it's possible. Because it, it was shot in a lot of wides. So yeah. it's possible. And it feels real. It, yeah. it feels really or like alive in a way that mm. it probably shouldn't for a movie like this. Yeah. Where you suddenly have this intrusion of discomfort and where people are... It is shot in two fairly wide shots, so it's entirely possible... And he just covered it and let it happen. That he just covered it and let it happen. That's possible. I mean, I kind of <laughs> yeah. want it to be that way. Yeah, exactly. That's, it is, it's, it's entirely... like I, You'd have to be there. Uh, you know, or they, there would have had to been... Uh, maybe it's in the commentary and I missed it where they explained that. I, I'm, I'll have to yeah. go back. But, but that's like... Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's absolutely why John Waters loves it. Yeah, like it's his it's his sense of 
the strange and unusual having that triumphant moment over the normals, mm-hmm. over the straights, where just suddenly they are uncomfortable in the mono- in the majority. Yep. <laughs> something else is going on they can't control. That's his thing. Like, mm-hmm. I can imagine. I just, I wish I'd been there when he saw it for the first time. I would love to know how he responded to it. Yeah. What he thought coming out of the, the, the cinema, you know, did he have to go sit with friends and drink and like really unpack that? Or was he alone? Like I would, I, maybe that's in the, Maybe there, it's out there. Maybe there's yeah. some kind of, of uh, he's done a write-up or something like that. But, the origin story. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely not your typical Christmas horror film. Uh, and the fact that it's you know one of John Waters' favorite horror, Christmas horror films and that, that so many uh, cult indie proponents trump it up as what it is, um, I would say if you haven't seen it, uh, you absolutely need to track it down, and it is not hard to find thanks to Shutter. Yeah. And you can, you know, Shutter's five bucks a month, and right now you can probably do a free trial. So it's like, you know, sign up and delete the, uh, you know, uh, cancel after you watch it if you want to. I don't. Nah, they'll keep it. But keeping like, it's a good idea. A it's worth it. Oh yeah, Shutter's a great platform. Yeah. Um, and and the and the best thing I can say about it now is that after we've been talking about it for however long. Uh, if you're listening and you haven't seen it, you still don't understand it. So yeah, exactly. Definitely experience. No, it's a it's very much an experiential movie, and I, I do remember the first time watching it because I expected exactly what you did that it was just going to be this Santa slasher kind of film. Yeah, I had somewhat of an inkling because of, of my subscription to Fangoria, and I'd read an article about it in the '90s. I didn't remember much of the article. I remembered the caption because right. it was stupidly funny. Oh, I would never forget that. Yeah. And uh, and I remembered them. Uh, I, I don't remember who wrote the article. I feel it was a Gangold article, but just talking about its cult legacy and things like that. This was even in the 90s. Um, but beyond that, I hadn't seen it until probably early 2000s. I think I rented it from Suspect Video in the early 2000s. That's the first time I saw it. And I remember sitting and watching it and... I was I just was entranced. It was it was one of those films that I I realized okay this is this stands as something very unique and uh, to dismiss it easily is a mistake and more people need to see this and hopefully over time people will warm up to it even more. Yeah, well that's what we're here for. Literally, yeah. like this is what the show is for mm-hmm. to pull people in and so then to uh, to get people out on the episode uh, you've already sort of touched on it a little bit but is there anything of Christmas Evil that you've used or borrowed or incorporated into your own creative DNA into your own work <sighs> I mean like, nothing particularly specific except the idea that through a lifetime of watching film uh, there's probably any film that has a, has affected me in any way is woven into the DNA of any work I do because uh, on a subconscious level, uh, those wheels are turning and I don't really know where particular ideas are coming from. It's only afterwards on reflection I can go back and go, yeah, that's a little like that. Um, Or yes, there's definitely uh, some sort of a tonal or thematic connection there. But if I say that Christmas Evil has a thematic connection to Life Changer, I can probably name 10 other films that do as well or 20 other films that do as well. So it's hard to pinpoint it as, yes, this influenced it. But it definitely, just in my self-education in film, my uh, obsession with cinema um, in growing up and watching what I do and collecting the films I do and, you know, watching and absorbing whatever I can, absolutely, I I think there's influence there. But whether or not, um, I mean, it's definitely not direct. But I, I can give credit where credit is due and say that it, it is one of the films of many films that have helped sort of formulate my perception of what film can be. Sure. Well, I mean, yeah. it's not just why you choose a film for the podcast, but how yeah. you come to choose it in the first place. And, and I always find that there's some 
there's some little thing being tugged. Yeah, no, almost always. Well, I, I definitely thought of it having a thematic connection, uh, and and also because both films take place over Christmas, um, it definitely had a because I wanted to do a Christmas film because this is supposed to be releasing Christmas, Christmas Day or Day. the day before or something like that. I wanted something Christmas related. My first choice was Love and Peace, which uh, I highly recommend you find. Regardless, it's probably one of the best Christmas films made in the last ten years. Even though when you first watch it, you may not see why it's a Christmas film, <laughs> in for the first maybe hour of it, I'm not saying anything more. I think it's heartwarming, and I think kids can watch it. They might have trouble reading the subtitles. Right. This is uh, Sion Sono's... Sion Sono's Love and Peace. Uh, it's a break from his regular films in that it isn't crazy and violent. It's right. heartwarming and funny and bizarre. It's still bizarre, but it's... I would, yeah. Yeah. I think the only film he's made that isn't bizarre in some way is the Fukushima movie. Yeah. The Land of Hope, which... But, of course, you want to be respectful when you're doing a Fukushima movie. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how a, a somber, reality-based drama is his outlier. Yeah, as opposed to everything else. <laughs> well, that's done. Miki too. His, his like uh, Shield of Straw and stuff like that is an outlier from Miki, and, and it's uh, I think a lot of those cult uh, Japanese the directors that break out into the Western market are known for their crazy stuff, and when they aren't making films that are their crazy ones, uh, they don't get seen as much, which yeah. is a shame. Uh, like Love and Peace, we tried at Indie Can to acquire it for for Canada at least, and uh, the asking price was just too high. Uh, it's um, I think it's Nakatsu so it's it's a larger company uh, it still doesn't have a release here so we couldn't do it for the podcast but I love that film as a Christmas film in this case I love I really love Christmas Evil both as a Christmas horror film but also as something that um, des- deserves more exposure and it does have at least some degree of thematic connection to Life Changer to the point where it made sense to come on the podcast and do it yeah, yeah. well I'm glad you did and uh, Life Changer is in theaters uh, it's in theaters December 28th in uh, Toronto, Calgary, and Ottawa. And then it hits uh, VOD across North America on January 1st. And comes out in the UK a month later, and there will be discs, but we can't talk about the release date yet. Nice. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I love the fact that a movie about people who are a character that reinvents itself repeatedly is coming out on New Year's Day. Yeah. Somehow there's something, yeah, there's something interesting about that. Hopefully people are you know not too hungover and actually want to rent it that day, but you can't... Films live on long past their release date now. Sure. So if, if it takes... I mean, it's being pretty well appreciated now, but if it takes a decade for people to really glom onto it or if it never happens, whatever. But um, I can't look at things like over the next month, I have to deal with... You know, Life Changer, it's, life is going to be longer than that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that eventually watch it, hopefully, and either like it or don't, but uh, give it a chance. And I hope people enjoy it yeah well, I mean who knows how long this podcast will be floating around out there. <laughs> yeah it's it's impossible to tell the internet is forever yeah, yeah pee in a pool <laughs> that's an interesting man <laughs> my thanks to Justin McConnell whose new movie Life Changer opens in theaters in Toronto Ottawa and Calgary this Friday December 28th before landing on VOD next Tuesday January 1st thanks also to Ingrid Hamilton she knows what she did you can find Justin on Twitter at UnstableGround, all one word, and you can find Christmas Evil on Blu-ray and DVD from The Vinegar Syndrome in a special edition that includes all the extras from the Synapse release that Justin mentioned. It's also streaming on Shudder. And Justin was right. The film predated Silent Night, Deadly Night by four full years. Also, Billy was the killer in the first Silent Night, Deadly Night, and his brother Ricky took over in the second one. It's amazing. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. 
and we'll see you in 2019. Happy holidays, everybody. Don't get murdered. <laughs>